Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. All right. So we're, we're in the midst of our fall series, and we're talking about how do you reset your life? And what we really mean by that is how do you change default settings? How do you change what, in many ways, you've accepted, almost unconsciously, you've accepted certain beliefs and values that result in behaviors? And so we're, we're really talking about how do you make those deep changes, not just temporary or superficial, but really lasting changes? So what we want to talk about today is really want to talk about somewhat of the, the what you need to change, but also in some ways, the why you need to change. And so I, for me, as I've studied this, I've really thought about my own journey personally in terms of change. And one of the biggest things that the Lord has done in my life is that I don't necessarily understand the concept of something unless I experience it. And so the concept of God's agape love or God's unconditional love did not really make sense to me except as a concept because I didn't grow up in a safe home. I didn't grow up in a place where there was the absence of abuse. Rather, I came into adulthood very damaged. And I married, Lisa and I married at 21, and we had our first child at 22, and I took my wife from her family and, and her community that she loved and the people that she loved, and we went to seminary, and we went to Jackson, Mississippi. If it's not the end of the earth, it's, you can see it from there. <laughs> and she didn't know anybody there, and it was the town where I had gone to college. All my friends were there. Most of my friends were in seminary with me. And so here she was, uprooted from her family and friends, brought to a place she has no friends, and she has a toddler. And I don't know if you've ever had a toddler, but they take a lot of attention. They take constant focus. And they don't talk. So you can spend all day with a toddler, and you have not had a conversation that has anyway, you know, been kind of mentally uh, exciting or nourishing or anything else. And so here I was, I was going to seminary full time, I was working full time, and I was hanging out with my friends as much as I possibly could. And one of the sticking points was that I loved to play golf with my friends. Now, I don't know if you know this, but golf is not an hour sport. When you play you know, golf, it's at least four hours. When you go with your friends and you hang out, it's six hours or all day. And so I would come home from playing golf, and she's exasperated with that little one-year-old. And she's looking at me, and she's angry. She's upset. And I, I was not a real smart husband. And so I looked at her and said, okay, I don't like you being angry. So what's the minimum I can do to keep you from being angry and get to do everything I want to do? Now, I said it a lot more sophisticated than that because I was trying to smooth her. You know, I was trying to negotiate. But really what was happening is I was saying, 
What is the least I can do and not give up anything I want to do and keep you from being angry with me? And I remember as I would go out the door to play golf, I'd say, do you not want me to play golf? She'd go, no, you go. That was her voice, okay? That was the tone of voice. So I would go play golf, and I'd feel guilty. And I'd actually get angry with her. You're ruining my golf game. That's how smart my wife was and how dumb I was. Because what she was saying was, you can't be married to me. You can't be one with me if you won't open your heart up to me. If I'm not first, if I'm last, then how can I have oneness with you? And I, one day, and I remember this day very clearly, I, it, it just, it hit me and it dawned on me. Here is the person that I believe is the most important person in my life. She is to me the most beautiful woman in the world. She is so spiritually uh, even in her 20s, such a spiritually mature woman and so, so you know, righteous in so many ways. And I'm running off to my goofy friends and playing a game that I will never get good at. And I'm running away from the one who loves me the most. And I can remember how afraid I was to surrender to her. Because I was afraid, what happens if I really give my heart to her? What happens if I really give her first? Now, the reason I tell you all that, and I use it so personally, is because here's at least is my experience. What God was doing in my marriage was he was creating a laboratory for me of agape love. I thought that marriage was going to be about satisfaction and pleasure, fulfillment, about getting, you know, to do anything I wanted to do and all of these things. And instead, God was saying, no, you're a broken person and you need to learn how to experience agape love, unconditional love, and how to give that unconditional love back. But you cannot give that love, nor can you receive that love if you don't trust. And you can't trust if you don't open your heart. And I remember the day that I realized the most wonderful person in the world wants to spend time with me. Wants me to think of her first. And I said, isn't that what I promised her when I married her? And so I remember overcoming my fears, overcoming my broken trust mechanism and saying, you're first for me. You're my first love. And I said to her, the issue has been on a, on a superficial level, the issue has been golf. So I took my clubs, I gave them away and I gave up golf. Now, she looked at me and I remember very distinctly, she said to me, it's really not about golf. It's about, do you love me more? then you love these other things. But she knew when I threw the, gave the clubs away that I was saying she was more important than anything else. And that was a turning point in our marriage. We've been married 42 years and it has been an incredible, incredible growing experience of me 
learning what it is to experience love and to give love. But for me, if, if, in some ways, if I hadn't had that in Lisa and that place in our marriage where I had to learn that, I would not understand the love of God and I would not be able to surrender to that love. I'm one of those people, unless some ways I can see it and experience it, it's really hard for me to know what that experience is supposed to be like. And so the Bible is very clear. It says, if you can't love the one you do see, then you'll never love the one you can't see. All right, are you quiet because you're thinking? Are you tracking with me at least a little bit? Don't leave me hanging up here. So one of the most important things that I learned from that experience is unless your motive to change is right, what you change will not matter. Because the what has to align with the person you're changing for. I was trying to negotiate a change where I didn't have to really change anything except her anger or disappointment with me. And what she was saying is, I'm not negotiating. I'm asking, will you surrender to me? And I'm saying to you, when God begins to work in your heart and you're resetting the values and the beliefs of your heart, he's not saying, I want a few behavioral changes. He's saying, will you trust me enough to surrender your whole life to me? Now, Paul is very clear in his teaching. He's very clear about what it means to do it the wrong way. So let's look together at Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And I like it when you read out loud with me. So will you read God's word together with me? If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The prophetic word that you need to hear is that emphasis on no value. See, if you're going to make changes, if you're going to sacrifice, if you're going to reset, then you don't want what you're resetting to be of no value. You want it to have strategic value. You want it to have lasting effect. And so what Paul is teaching here is that change has to be where you begin to realize it's more than just changing what I'm doing. I mean, all of us probably, I have, despaired sometimes that either I'm changing too slowly or sometimes it feels like you don't change at all. And it's really clear that, that some people get to a place of almost resignation that I'm the one person that it doesn't work for. This is why I love having messy church. Because when people get honest, then you realize everybody is as messed up as you are. 
And you realize that the thing that you thought, I'm the only one with this weakness, I'm the only one with this struggle, you realize so many other people have exactly the same struggle. And the more honest and the more transparent you become, you begin to realize that because others have changed and grown and others have overcome, you can overcome too. Because the glorious good news of Jesus is as long as you have Jesus in your life, you have hope and anything can change. But part of the problem is if you're trying to change the wrong things in the wrong way, then you only have your willpower to rely upon. When you try to change out of your own grim determination, you're doing it all by yourself. God will not resource what he himself has not asked you to do. So what many of us do is we make vows. We make promises. We say, I'll never do that. I'll make up for that. We try to atone for the wrongs that we've done because in some ways we want to earn forgiveness instead of simply receive forgiveness. Even spiritual disciplines, which are good things, if used in the wrong things, become self-made religious things. You see, anything that you do that you're saying, God, you should accept me because I do this. Or God, I am good because I have this in my life. Anything that you are basing acceptance with God on that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ is a self-made religion of no value whatsoever. So you don't want to waste your time on that which will not change you, but also that which does not really come from the heart of God. And so change is more than doing, but how do I change then if it's more than that? Well, the, there's a Puritan writer that I read all the time. His name is John Flavel. For some reason that is teeny tiny and I do not have Superman vision. Maybe it'll come. I can look on here. So here's what, here's what Flavel, oh, there it is, beautiful. Thank you. So here's what Flavel says. You've got to get this with me, okay? Because it will make a difference, if you will. We are more able, he said, to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power than to rule and order our hearts. See, the thought that you have, like one of the thoughts that Christians tell me all the time, I should be better by now. I should have overcome this by now. What you're saying is, I should be able to rule my heart. Well, he's saying ruling your heart would be as easy as changing the direction of the Hudson River. Ruling your heart, ordering your heart to be what it ought to be is as easy as telling the sun to stop shining. And until you understand this, you will keep trying to change out of your own willpower. Guess what? If you change by your own willpower, who gets the glory? See, I, I had to learn how to be a better husband. I had to learn in some ways how to, how to win back my wife's trust. But the problem was I was trying to do it by pleasing her, by ruling or ordering my own heart. But here's what I found. That when I put a dish in the dishwasher, I wanted CNN to be alerted. Because <laughs> I'm like, see what I'm doing, honey? I'm changing. 
You can love me because I put a dish in the dishwasher. Washer. And you start to realize when you're changing and you're doing it, you want everybody to notice. And you want everybody to give you credit. Now, here's the thing. When we try to do it in our own power, we will at times, we will at times realize there are elements that are going on in our hearts that are common to all of us. Every one of you has emotional and intimacy needs that are very real. And when we are in relationship with people, we're seeking to get those needs met and we're seeking to meet their needs as well. Now we do this intuitively. We do it, we, sometimes we do it very intentionally. But Lisa and I were one time, we were at his conference and the speaker was talking about these emotional needs. And he said, attention and approval are legitimate needs. And I elbowed Lisa. And I said, see? Because, you see, her whole life she said, you're just an attention getter. And all you want is praise and you want approval. And you're just a hot dog and I'm not going to give it to you. And I said, see? He said, it's real. He says, it's a real human need. It's not me being a hot dog. It's me being a person. So she goes, okay, I'll try. I'll try to do better. I'll try to do better. So the next day, she looks at me. I came, you know, was going to work or whatever it was. She looks at me and she goes, you look handsome today. And I said, could you elaborate on that? <laughs> and she goes, I can't win with you. You see, I, I needed her to say things that were praise of me. I wanted it. But I wanted it so badly and the hole was so deep that my heart couldn't even take it when she gave me what she could give me. But also, as she tried to give it to me because I couldn't receive it very well, it made her frustrated even to give what I needed. That's what I mean when I say you can't change the course of the Hudson River any more than you by yourself, by your willpower, can change your own heart. You see, many people, when you get moved by the word of God or you begin to see God's will for you more clearly, you begin to, to think, I got to start right away. I got to make a commitment. I got to promise to do better thinking if I just get active, if I just get active, then, then I can change. But you see what Paul is saying, every time you go to a list of do's and don'ts, you're moving your heart away from the heart of God. You're saying, I will be acceptable if, I will be loved if, instead of saying, I am accepted because of Christ. I am loved because of Christ. You see, we're so used to conditional love, we think we have to earn it. We have to deserve it. And so what we do is we use a whole new set of morality or laws or spiritual disciplines and say, if I'm good at these things, then God will love me, bless me, and give me his favor. Instead of recognizing the gospel is he's already loved you, blessed you, and given him, given you his favor, you need to accept it by faith because either you live in grace or you live in condemnation. I'm glad Alan likes it because I can't, I can't quite tell with the rest of you. I said I need praise and attention. Elaborate on that. All right. So if my heart is this 
unruly, if it doesn't want to be ordered, what do I do? Well, I got to start saying that when I see these areas that need change, I don't start making a list of how to change it or what to change. I immediately say, my heart must be changed by the Lord himself. And so one of the questions that helped me so much is this. Are we open to the Lord, to the depths of our being? Is there first and foremost an abandonment of ourselves, our whole selves, to the love and goodness of God? Now, I know I'm being personal today because I learned more about this action through the love that I've learned to receive and give to Lisa than I have in any other thing in my life. I realized she wasn't saying give up golf. As a matter of fact, a few years later, she goes, hey, you want to take up golf again? You're kind of hanging around the house too much. (laughs) So it was never about golf. It was about the closeness of my heart to her. It really wasn't about the amount of time, although the amount of time showed that my heart wasn't open to her. It was the fact that I was abandoning myself to other things, but I wasn't abandoning myself to her. And when I began to understand that in my relationship with Lisa, I realized this is what the Lord is asking of me. You see, this part of me that opens my heart that says I will trust you fully and completely is broken. There's a broken trust mechanism inside of me. The abuse of those who should have cared for me, the, the, the anger and the rage that I lived in in my home and all the punishment over, over little bitty things had made me to where I trusted no one but myself. And though I was attracted to my wife and though she was an incredible woman, I didn't trust anybody. I didn't open my heart to anybody. I actually, if I'm saying it to you very transparently, I loved her for how she made me feel. And God was saying, you got to love with an open heart and you got to love abandoning yourself. This is what real surrender is. There are a lot of us who've heard and maybe you've experienced something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And there are often times, because the Holy Spirit is so gracious, there are signs that he has baptized you or signs that he has filled you. And sometimes these signs are supernatural wonders of of prophecy or tongues or healings or all of these other things. But you see, the signs are not what he's really trying to do. What he's trying to do is say, open your heart. Abandon yourself to me. See, you can't have fullness if you're already full of something else. You can't be baptized if there's no room. It kind of just spills out. And so I love the signs of the Holy Spirit. I love the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he's not primarily trying to give us gifts. He's primarily trying to give us himself. And he can give himself to one who is open to God and says, my heart will not rule itself, but my heart will surrender to you. Because I can tell you this, 
when you seek God, it's always because he's been seeking you. Amen. Now, Lisa gave us a, developed a, a, a visual way to look at what's going on in change. She called it the repentance circle. It's based in some ways or inspired by Mike Breen's Kairos moment learning circle. But we wanted to do it specifically for repentance. Now, here is what the spirit does and what he does to make your heart more and more open, to heal that trust mechanism that's broken, to give you the ability to abandon yourself to him. As he begins to convict you, he begins to show you areas in which healing and change must take place. Now, this conviction can come through preaching of a sermon. It can come through your reading of a word. But oftentimes, it's just the Holy Spirit dropping a thought into your consciousness or unconsciousness. Sometimes, it'll be that you just have a, a check in your spirit. Sometimes, you'll just begin to feel uncomfortable about a relationship. Or you'll feel uncomfortable about certain activities. Or you can feel guilt sometimes when you've said what you shouldn't have said. Now, I'll tell you this, that anybody changes because they're ashamed is usually not that beneficial. Shame twists you. It does not heal you. Shame is an indicator of healing needed, but it is not a healing resource. And so what we look at is how does the spirit, when he's just kind of either subtly getting your attention or I've had him hit me over the head with a two by four. When he's doing that, your job is then to begin to respond. And what the circle does is it allows you to see this has to go full circle. It has to be a complete turnaround for it to go from just superficial change to real default setting reset. And the way that we look at it is when he convicts you, instead of justifying what you've done or blaming the situation or people for what's happened, in, in some ways, please, would you grasp this with me? As long as you're blaming somebody else, you will not change. Amen. And guess what? They won't either. And so you're stuck. And this is why I love this circle, because the circle says God doesn't want you stuck. But it takes courage and it takes honesty to begin to acknowledge, yes, I did it. But then if you, if you can take that responsibility, you take it the next step and you verbally confess what you've done. Your confession is a verbal consent for the Holy Spirit to change your heart. It's you verbally saying, I'm willing for this to change. And it is also a way then that the Spirit begins to open up more of your heart so that you begin to see Wait a minute, I'm recognizing that what I've been doing not only hurts me, but it hurts the heart of God. You must understand this. Breaking God's rules is never simply breaking the rules. It's breaking his heart. We are not people of a man-made religion. We are people who God has sought relationship with. Just as my wife said to me, I want your love to be for me above all these other people. God is saying, I want your love for me to be above everything else. And he is seeking you. And so realizing when I sin, when I do wrong, I don't just hurt myself. It's not self-centered change. It's God-centered repentance. 
where you begin to realize, I don't want to hurt the heart of God anymore with my life. And if you'll do those three things and begin, I know it seems a downward circle, but it will culminate in the ability to receive forgiveness and freedom. You're not trying to atone for your sin. You're not trying to make up for what you've done. You realize the only atonement for your weaknesses, the only atonement for your transgressions, the only atonement for your areas of sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you are really allowing the Spirit to move in your heart, the cross becomes enough for you. And instead of saying, I've got to do something to be forgiven, you are receiving that Jesus has done everything for your forgiveness. It's a simple verse, but so profound. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. Now, why do I use that verse? One is because the forgiveness is waiting for you. But number two, that begins the upward cycle. That begins the upward momentum because who's going to do the cleansing? Who's going to do the ordering of your heart? Who's going to make the Hudson River flow in an opposite direction? The very God who created that river. Why do I say that? Because he said that out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Are you tracking with me so far? Are some of you just quietly meditating on this, but you're taking it in deeply? Okay, this is my third service, so I need help. I'm not as young as I used to be. The reason I told you all that stuff about Lisa and my relationship is because I really believe that we have been trained to not surrender. I think we've been trained to negotiate, to bargain. God, I'll give you this if. But you see, love is not a negotiation. Love has this kind of craziness to it, a kind of crazy demand that says you either give all of yourself and get all of the love or you don't get any of it. It's, it's, kind of, it's strange how certain things are all or nothing. It's why so often people say Christianity doesn't work for me because they could never give themselves to Christ. They wanted the benefits of the kingdom, but they didn't want the king. So our choice then to surrender has to come out of somewhere other than the kingdom of self. See, anything we do within the kingdom of self is done by means of our own willpower. And that's never enough to enter or even live within the kingdom of God. We must allow and we must believe that God is acting on our behalf. Even when the change seems low, do you, slow, do you know what change, slow change means? It means the roots were a lot deeper than you thought. Amen. And so the tearing up of the roots is taking longer than you expected. But God's spirit, as you are confessing, as you are receiving forgiveness, God's spirit is reordering your heart. And you are called to collaborate with that. See, what God desires above all else is your consent. You cannot force a person to love you. 
You can compel obedience, but you cannot force love. Love is either freely given or it is not love. And so the Holy Spirit knows your heart to the depths, loves you all the way to the top, but he says, I cannot and will not be able to affect the changes in your life if you do not consent to them. Now, he shows you all the reasons why you should consent, but he's asking you, will you let me do this? Will you participate? You see, because to consent means I trust you. Again, I remember, I mean, I'm having pictures of Lisa back in our 20s. And I can remember the hurt that I caused her. I can remember the disappointment that I caused her because I was not, I was not trusting that my life with her was the primary place of my life. I was saying, I want you to be my wife, but I want to have you compartmentalized. You understand something? You cannot be one with somebody you don't trust. You can't be one with somebody you don't trust their purposes. You don't trust their motives. You don't trust their agenda. So many people marry because they're physically attracted or because they're emotionally attracted, but never ever asking the question, do I trust this person enough to surrender my whole self to them? And so marriages are usually less than satisfying. Because when we hold back, we hold back our love because we're holding back our trust. And the relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit is one where he's saying, you can trust me, but you have to consent. You have to allow me even even access to say, I'm going to heal your broken trust mechanism. Well, here's how not to do it. When the waves of inner guilt come and you say, I'm going to resolve instead of surrender. I've seen people at the altar all over the world say, I'm going to do better this time. This is going to be the last time I have to work on this. I'm really mean in business with God right now, they'll say. This is my true surrender. But the problem is their surrender at that point is fueled by willpower. I promise I'll never do this again. And they go out and immediately do it worse than they did before. Because when it's willpower, it's no more genuine than you just surrender because you feel guilty. Self-centered change is of no value. It just means you change from one rotten thing to another. But when you live this kind of willpower life, you're just living a willful life. And the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God will never mix. God will not enter into your kingdom and empower you as the king. Unless you resign your kingdom renounce your throne, then the change will not take place. There will be changes, but they won't matter. They will be of no value. So, you guys are making me feel heavy here. Come on. Come on, I'm trying to help you here. All right, so let me give you a practical takeaway. 
Here's the deal. You will not grow or change in the way your heart needs to grow unless you learn from your failures. If you will not talk about your failures, if you'll not talk about your weaknesses, you're wasting your sorrows. So this takes incredible courage and it takes a lot of humility to say, here's where I'm weak. Here's where I failed. But here's the thing. That bad behavior, any unwanted disobedience, those are all just symptoms. What the Holy Spirit is doing is he's pressuring you in such a way that you have to see where the broken places are. But he's not doing it to embarrass you. He's doing it to heal you. So here are a couple of questions to ask. Now, why is it important to ask questions so you can change? Because the Bible says you've got to be alert and you've got to be sober. In other words, you cannot be superficial and make substantial changes. You can't just be a cliche. Oh, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Or you can't be that cliche that says, hey, I don't have to worry about this. I just trust in Jesus. Baloney. You're trusting in a cliche. And it will not save you. The Bible says you have to understand what it means when you say, I trust in Jesus. I have been around people who tell me they trust in Jesus. There was nothing in their life that in any way evidenced that they were trusting in Jesus. actually had one man come up to me up here and say, no one trusts in Jesus more than me. I was like, if you actually trusted in Jesus, you would never say that. So what are the questions? All right. Here, here are two that are helpful. The first is, what legitimate need was I trying to meet when I did that behavior? What legitimate need was I trying to meet by that action or that reaction? In other words, was I trying to get attention? Was I trying to get approval? Was I, was I in some way trying to feel secure or feel safe? Was I trying to soothe a place of pain? I've been working on a, a study. At some point, I'd like to, to share. It, it, there's this great research about why we get stuck in sexual sin why we get stuck in lust. And one of the researchers that's really helped me, he said, it all starts with, with self-deprivation as a child. And when we live in deprivation where our needs are never met or our needs, our opposite is met in a way. Instead of safety, we feel abused. Instead of feeling uh, like we get good attention, instead we're neglected or we're, we're criticized. He said that self deprivation turns our, in a sense, our soul. It fractures our soul and we become disassociated. And we begin to think in a way like, I'm the only one who can meet my needs. He said, once you go from self-deprivation to this kind of dissociation, what happens next is you feel entitled. And you say, why wouldn't God want this for me? I work so hard. I, I don't have anything. Do you know how hard my life is? Do you know how hard it has been for me? And you begin to say, because of self-deprivation, because now I've dissociated, I've disconnected, I'm now entitled even to things that I know will destroy me. You see, what the Spirit wants to do is He wants to go back even to the places of your deepest wounds and say, I want to meet those needs. 
I want to meet your deepest needs. I want to make you safe. I want to make you realize how significant you are. And I want you to know that you're accepted unconditionally. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. See, he doesn't want to just meet those felt needs. He wants to meet those deepest needs. So you have a platform and a base for your life of security and significance and love. But here's the other thing. You, you and I do this. We don't intend to do it, but we do it all the time. We take a good desire and we make it an ultimate desire. We begin to say, this has to happen. I have to have this result. It has to turn out like this. And we pray that way and we tell God how our life has to turn out and how people have to treat us and every other thing. Do you know when you do that, you have given away your power because you've now said my happiness, my satisfaction is based on people or things that I have no right to control and I have no ability to control. So then you'll either manipulate, control people, or you'll be angry, depressed, or anxious. But you see, if you see those symptoms, you can go and say, hey, what desire got out of control here? And how do I demote that desire? And promote this, God, you're my everything. No one is ultimate to me but you, Lord. Every other thing I submit, I surrender to your love for me. If you'll remind yourself, Jesus is always trying to heal you. Jesus is always trying to get at those false expectations and those false assumptions. You see, every failure you have can be traced to a false expectation or a false assumption. The Spirit isn't simply trying to change your behavior. He's trying to change your expectations and your assumptions. I want to read one thing to you. I didn't get to read it to any of the other services, but I'm going to read, read this, and then I'll ask Ashley to come home. David's cry after his sin was exposed in Psalm 51 and it becomes the cry of our own repentance as well. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to create in me a clean heart. He says, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, instead of saying, I can rule my heart, I can order my heart, what did David say? I'm a mess. And he said, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I find that this only happens for us when we say, I'm not going to look at my sin only. I'm going to look at the cross. I'm going to look at the cross. I'm going to look at the love he has shown for me. I'm going to look, as he says, surrender to me. I'm going to look at how he surrendered to me. How he surrendered everything for me. And then I will open my heart to him. And then I will abandon myself to him. And as I do that, friends, I'm allowing his spirit, the consent, to say, set me free. Because that's where we see that the, the truth set us free. God bless you. Will you stand with me as we close?
I love that we started this reset series a couple weeks ago from just this place of the great love that the Father has from us for us. Because when we understand the love that the Father has for us, we can lean into these places that He's revealing in us. If, if the Lord was pressing on anything today, if, if there was just something that kind of came up this morning as we heard the message, would you be willing to lean in to what God is asking of you? He's not revealing these places to shame you. He's not revealing these places to harm you or to hurt you. He's revealing these places because He wants to fill you with more of Himself. And so these places in our lives that we need to turn from and give to Him as we turn to Him, He's pulling them out to make more space for His presence, for you to be filled more and more with the love that He has for you. And you can be courageous to lean in and to press in because He loves you, because He loves you. And He never leaves you alone in the process. So I bless you to be a people who will be courageous to look at whatever the Lord is bringing up in your life so that he can fill you with more and more of himself. Father, we say that we wanna be a people who look like Jesus, who sound like Jesus, who act like Jesus. And in order to do that, we need these places in our lives to come out of us. We need to turn away and turn to you. Father, thank you for loving us simply because you love us. We give you all the glory and all the honor. And we say we will be courageous enough to go after it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.